Welcome back, everyone. I'm Tony Brown, and you're listening to Firearms Cafe, the show where we discuss the philosophies of responsible firearms ownership, as well as the relevant issues and challenges that we face in the current gun culture. Hey, everybody, what's going on? Today is Sunday. It's the 18th of March, 2018. The show will be a little bit different today in that we'll go over some of the feedback that I got and then we will, I will play for you guys a uh, interview that I did with Angry American, a.k.a. Chris Weatherman. Uh, he is an author and a well-known uh, prepper, kind of survivalist type person. I guess maybe that would be the easiest way to describe it. But he and I, he and I excuse me, there we go, had a really nice conversation and I hope you guys get something out of it and hope you guys enjoy it. So we'll be going a little bit away from some of the firearm stuff, talking about that, maybe even some of the political stuff. We won't dwell too much on that today. So anyway, let's go ahead and get our contact info out of the way. I do have the voicemail, which is area code 206-745-2731. The email address is firearmscafe at gmail.com. And if you want to send an email or if you would like to send your pre-recorded audio, I'll be more than happy to get that stuff on the show for you. Over on the website, there are buttons for Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. There's also a PayPal donation button if you were ever so inclined. And the email address, or not email address, excuse me, the website is firearmscafe.com. All right, Uh, like I said, we did have a bit of feedback. And I got some of that a little bit from Isaac. And I'll go ahead and read that. He wrote in... The governor of Florida, Rick Scott, the teacher's portion of the bill requires 144 hours of training. Mind you, Rick Scott is a Republican, and this bill passed by 10-plus votes. We have a Republican Senate and House in Florida. Thanks, Isaac. P.S. I like the show more when you talk about laws and bills than gun reviews. Your show was my first podcast I listened to. Have a great day. Well, Isaac, I'm glad you like the show. For those of you guys maybe who didn't catch the last show or two, One of the bills that the Florida governor, uh, Rick Scott, signed into uh, law, I guess, was that they were going to raise the age to purchase any type of firearm to uh, age 21. And also the thing who was talking about the 144 hours of training, that would pertain to maybe somebody being in the school armed uh, and being concealed there. I imagine if you probably went and looked up Florida State... Uh, Law Enforcement Academy, that's probably a uh, minimal amount of training that you have to that you would have to have to be certified through the uh, through Florida State as far as a law enforcement officer type thing. So I imagine that's where the 144 hours comes from. Uh, I've seen in some other states when they're offering training that basically what you would do is you would almost become like a reserve officer at that point. And so it may be that that if you go through the training and do that, it may be that you would be able to be certified, maybe not necessarily a police officer, obviously, but you might be able to be sworn in as either maybe a deputy or as a reservist, probably would, would be what I would think would be the most logical thing. Now, since it's 144 hours, sometimes the way that the reservist can be trained is you maybe go on the weekends. Uh, so it would take a while, a while to get it done, but, and you still have to pass, you know, background checks and 
be fingerprinted and go through psyche valves and, and probably have to, you might have to take some type of a written exam to do this training. I don't know. It just, all this stuff is so new that we don't know just yet. But um, anyway, like I said, I don't want to kind of go on too long. We also got a little bit of feedback from Jeff and he recommended that I listen to the latest episode of Black Man with a Gun with Ken Blanchard. And on there, and I forget the, the guy's name who he's, who's doing the actual interviewing, I apologize, but he interviews Hank Strange. Um, Hank Strange is a guy on YouTube. He does uh, some other stuff as well. I really like him. I like a lot of his stuff. I don't always necessarily agree with all his views on every single issue, but you know, you're not going to be 100% uh, with everybody. But I do like him quite a bit. I uh, subscribe to his channel. And it was some of the stuff that we were talking about. He was one of the bigger channels. I think he's got around 60,000 plus subscribers uh, on YouTube alone. And he was one of the guys that was sort of getting targeted. Uh, one of the gun channels that I was talking about before. So anyway, and that was from, uh, again, from Jeff, who had sent us in some feedback last time as well. And I think that's about all the stuff that I got. I did get, and I, I failed to mention it last week, but I had gotten something from Michael where he had basically sent me and if I can do it, I'll try and uh, put them up. But he had sent me some of the ads that were running in Australia when they were doing their initial bans on firearms and how you're going to have to turn stuff in. And they were they were meant to be kind of funny, but they were also kind of draconian, I kind of thought. And, and what they were doing, one thing was something like, uh, I can see if I can't pull it up on the phone here, um, if it'll let it. Yeah, one thing it said, think about it now, or you could get 12 months to think about nothing else. And it basically shows a bunch of guys showering, basically meaning in prison. And then there's other stuff saying like, have you handed in your illegal firearm? Attention, duck hunters. You'll be surprised what banned guns are worth these days. So it it was just odd. And of course, this stuff was from... I'm seeing if it'll show a date on this thing. I don't think it will, if I can zoom in enough. Was it maybe 98 or something when they did that? I can't. Anyway, they were doing stuff about, oh, it's the, the gun amnesty. And after Saturday of the 17th, you're not going to have any excuses. Anyway, what I will do is I'll go ahead and drop in the interview. Or I guess I should probably more accurately call it just the conversation that Chris and I had. I plan on maybe in the next couple of months having him back. And maybe we did sort of just a general conversation a couple of days ago, and I plan on having him back and maybe talking about some very specific things uh, and kind of delving in deeper. I may even do some stuff with his books as well. So, all right, guys, I hope you enjoy the interview and that will kind of do it for me. At the very end, I'll kind of come back and just sort of give the farewell. All right, guys, with me today is Chris Weatherman, uh, also known as the Angry American, and he, I know him primarily from sort of the prepping side, but he is also an author, and I think you are also on the History Channel's Alone show, which again, I don't know a whole lot about that, so I'd like you to talk about that stuff as well, but why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself, and then we'll jump in. Yeah, I'm, uh, like you said, my name's Chris, I write under the name Angry American, um, that started out many years ago as a forum handle and it just kind of stuck. So I stuck with it, you know? And, uh, yeah, I was on season one of alone, the, you know, the flagship, um, season there. 
Um, I think the show's changed a little bit since since our time there, but um, I still love the show and look forward to the new seasons every time they come out. With that show, so what what did they actually have you do? Did, did you go out? Uh, it sounds like from the name alone, obviously you're going to maybe have to go out and sort of be on your own and survive for a certain type of thing. Is that what that was? Yeah, it was. It was, and it was legit too. It's, it wasn't like a lot of the survival shows. It wasn't a scripted deal at all. Um, they took you out to a spot. They dropped you off with your gear and, some, and a bunch of camera equipment, waved goodbye and left. <laughs> and, uh, you had to, you had to film it all. You had to do everything, you know, so everything you were doing, you know, as far as trying to build shelters and get food and everything else, I mean, you were responsible for filming all of it. So, I mean, there was no crew around giving you advice or moving camera gear or nothing. I mean, it literally was alone. How long did they have you out there for? Well, the guy that won it, I think, what he did a, almost 60 days, I think. Ooh-wee. Um, Sadly for me, yeah, yeah, in Vancouver, British Columbia, too, which was pretty stout. Um, for me, I had wolves show up the second night I was there, and um, me and canines don't mix that well. Yeah. And uh, they they stayed in my camp for hours, and finally I called for them to come get me out of there because I get bit a lot. I mean, I was in not well, was, this was this is eighteen seventeen, so two thousand seventeen at Shot Show I was bit by a canine. Mm. Um, it just me and dogs just don't blend, and uh, and I know that. And when those three wolves that probably weighed one hundred and fifty pounds a piece showed up, you know, it uh, was unnerving. Let's say. Yeah, that's no but joke. It's still, I I shouldn't. Yeah, I shouldn't have called because it took them 14 hours to come get me. I mean, if the wolves wanted me, they could have had me. There's nothing I could have done about yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, you call. Oh, yeah, all you got to do is call for extraction. Okay, yeah, 14 hours later, they'll come get you. But we knew that going in, too. We knew that if there was a problem, um, they would get there in time to recover the body. And we all kind of understood that. So. <laughs> <laughs> or parts of the body if the wolves actually got you. Yeah, whatever, whatever's left. I mean, we had a, we had a guy that the guy that tapped out like the first night. Um, he had black bears all over his camp, and he was he was pretty scared of the bears, predators. Um, you know, some other people had predator encounters as well. But um, you know, looking back, you know, when they showed up, I'm like, hey man, they left. You know, I'm good. I'll stay. They're like, no, nope, you called. You got to go. Oh, whatever. that was all yeah. Right, let's go back up. Kind of one of the rules for their their deal. Once you make the call, yeah. you're out type thing. Yep, yep, yep. So they, I mean, they stuck to their rules. They 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 did it right, in my opinion. It was a really good show. Yeah, I had a similar experience. Uh, I was up. I'm I live out in Arizona, and I was up in the northern part of the country or the state, excuse me. And uh, I was out camping there, and I heard probably oh I don't know ten fifteen coyotes that must have been within a hundred yards of me and they had chased probably a rabbit or something down and you could just hear them just tearing the thing apart and they were just howling and howling and it was uh it's a little unnerving you know people think oh, oh yeah. coyotes aren't a big deal but i tell you what even if you got three or four of them and there's they're anywhere from 30 to 60 pounds they'll uh, they'll take you out pretty quick yeah you know and plus they're pack animals so yeah uh, a pack of them to be a little like you said a little unnerving yeah you know, and, I, and a lot of people talk trash to, about folks that have those encounters, uh, and it's easy to do when you're sitting in your living room and you're, you're you're recliner with your laptop on your belly and a cold beer in your hand. It's easy to say stuff about people. You know, I don't knock anyone who's ever gone out and tried something and failed because you know they went and tried. Yeah, so it's um, 
you know, there's people that do things and there's people that talk about doing things. Okay. Well, I got a couple of questions for you about, uh, like we had said right before we started, I was new as far as some of the books that you had written and I had read the first chapter in Going Home and I was really intrigued by it and I plan on getting those. One of the things that I really liked about it was that the uh, the main character, and his name escapes me right now. But Morgan's the, is Morgan's yeah. the main character. So Morgan just seemed to be, uh, and I don't know maybe if it's revealed later in the in the book, but he just seemed to be kind of like a regular guy who was interested in prepping and, and took it actually seriously. And so that when, uh, when something happens, and we're not really given too much away uh, to say that they're, He's driving down the road and his car stops. And luckily he has, well, I guess it's not luckily because he made the, the choice, the conscious choice to go ahead and have stuff with him. But it's interesting, even with his stuff, he's still not 100% where he would want to be or have all the stuff that he would want. And he has to make some decisions. Or, well, am I going to take this? Am I going to keep that? But I, I like the fact, too, that he wasn't necessarily, oh, he's this super high-speed you know, Delta Force recon guy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so he's, and he's had, you know, he had 20 years of, you know, training on how to deal with this stuff. And he's not like a high speed, you know, cop who's a SWAT guy who's, you know, has all this, you know, uh, tons and tons of training, but he's just like a regular guy who's had some done classes and had training and thought about stuff. And uh, what I also like in the books too, or at like, least, from what I've read so far, but I like that you mention actual kind of gear and sort of name it by name and say, this is what he had and this is what he, what he's using. So I, uh, like I said, I'm, I'm very, very interested to go ahead and get those. Um, so you can get those off of like, where can people get those? I know you can get them off Amazon, but do you have your own website where they could get that stuff as well? Amazon's the best place. Barnes and Noble, the, the first five books of the series are, are even in the stores. They're in, Barnes and Noble bookstores, books a million, Walmart, they're all over the place. Oh, okay. Um, but I, I, I left the publisher after five books and now I just self publish them. But yeah, I mean, that was the whole premise behind it. You know, the main character, Morgan Carter, he's just a normal guy. He's just a husband and a dad. He works a job. Um, but like you said, he, he acknowledges that, you know, we live in uncertain times and things can happen. And he, uh, he just tried to prepare himself, you know, um, he's, he, doesn't have prior military service in the story. He's, you know, he's just a normal dude. Later in the books, the, the first time somebody actually shoots at him, you know, he falls on his ass. He just, he falls down. You know, he doesn't get hit, but he just falls on his ass. Because, um, you know, people that aren't accustomed to that, who don't have combat experience or who have spent, you know, hundreds of hours drilling those kind of things, a lot of folks are going to respond that way. You know, you're going to, you don't know what you're going to do. So I wanted him to just be a normal, normal dude and, um, and see how a normal guy would try to make his way through a world like that, you know? And plus, you know, he's 250 miles from home when his car dies and he's got to walk home. Yeah. And so that makes for a whole nother challenge in and of itself. You know, you talked about him trying to triage his gear, basically. What am I going to take? What, you know, what am I going to leave? Because, you know, he's got a, backpack but he understands he's got to walk 250 miles and you know that's a daunting task for anybody yeah you know and how much weight can you carry how far can you walk that sort of thing so um he doesn't have a rifle with him he's just got a pistol and that's how he starts out well too you know if you think about it that's how even if somebody 
the average person who, let's say, maybe can conceal carries or even who preps a little bit and has maybe a, a probably just a get home bag, what, what they would consider a quick get home bag, meaning for them, they're only going to be maybe 10, 15 miles from home tops, uh, which is what I think a lot of people when they have a little get home bag type thing. Uh, and it's usually very small. So it's not a, a major pack, but you're not going to have generally you're not going to have a rifle with you. And then even if you did, if it was the first few hours or first couple of days, I don't know, uh, it, would, it would depend on the emergency, but I don't know how people would react to you if you were walking down the street or walking down the road with a rifle. I mean, we've seen kind of what happens when in in uh, what we'll call civilized times when, when somebody's out in the countryside walking down the road with the rifle. Sometimes, you know, they get called, the police get called, and they kind of get hassled and this, that, and the other thing, so... Like I said, I, I really like kind of the situation that you put that guy in, and, and uh, I'm I'm interested to see sort of how it turns out. So, when did you first when did you first write that book? I think it was like 2011, 12 ish, right around there. Yeah. I wrote it on a forum. I wrote it online, and uh, just for my own entertainment, you know, I was just doing it for something for me to do. I worked, uh, I traveled a lot for work. I spent a lot of time in hotels. And um, it gave me something to do in the evening, you know, kind of wind down sort of thing. Yeah. I just, I was reading stories one night on, on this website and I'm like, you know, these are all kind of cool, but they're sort of missing something for me. And I'm like, oh, what the hell, I'll write one. That, that much planning went into it. And I started it and I wrote about 5,000 words that first night. Oh, wow. And, uh, yeah, which is a pretty good chunk, you know. Yeah. And, and uh, posted it, went to bed. And then I uh, got up the next morning and man, there were... There were loads of comments, people talking about it. And so that's how, like, the gear mentions and things got in there. Because as I was going, people were asking questions and talking about it. I could see what they were thinking. And I would answer questions in the story instead of just answering a question. Um, Or I knew what people were thinking was going to happen. And I could just do something entirely different and always catch them off guard. And it, um, it just developed a life of its own. I mean, it really did. I wrote that thing in about 90 days total. And then... People started, you know, pushing me to publish it, and I was like, "I'm not going to publish this. I'm not a writer. Nobody's going to pay money for this garbage." And uh, <laughs> and uh, they were really, really persistent. God bless them all. And um, they pushed me into doing it, and and then it got my attention because, you know, I mean, weeks after I paid way too much money to have it turned into a book, you know, Penguin Books calls and makes an offer, and here we are now. You know, I'm 15 published novels later, so. So when when you go with somebody like Penguin, because this is something I I've never really had an opportunity to talk to somebody who's actually gone with a like a major publishing company. Did they? So right. you you had your your sort of your book, or I don't know if they would consider it a manuscript or how they would do it. And then when you go to them, do they then assign a guy who's uh, an editor, or do they? How does that work? And do they say, okay, well we'd like you to change this or what? What's, I guess, their involvement kind of with, with your creative process? Oh, yeah. They, they assign you an editor, and I had a really good editor. Um, I liked her a lot. She was, she was great. But they do try to get involved in the creative process. Um, there's a lot of arguing that goes on. Hmm. Um, they want things taken out all the time. Um, that's mainly what they want is things taken out. Um, we almost had a deal killer because they wanted me to modify a scene in the book. Um, the first scene... Uh, where Morgan has to use a weapon to defend himself. And they wanted me to change it from the way I wrote it. Because the basic scene is there's three guys that confront him, and 
he's by himself. He's one guy. There's three of them, and they pretty much tell him they want his pack and his stuff, and and he's like, no, nah, we're not going to do that. And then anybody in that situation, you know, a couple days into an event like this, there is no second place, you know. Yeah. Um, the guy that acts first is the one that's going to win, you know. And and he realizes that real quick, and, and he, he pulls his pistol and shoots somebody. It doesn't kill him outright there, the, the, the guy he shoots, but it lets him get away, and, and he's able to run off and have his stuff. And they're like, you know, well, Morgan's supposed to be the good guy in this story. He can't just shoot him for no reason. And I'm like, what do you mean no reason? Anybody reading this sees where it's going. Everybody knows. And and they're like, no, no, they, they have to attack him. They have to do something. And I'm like, you don't understand how this works. I said, if he waits for them to assault him, he's already losing. Yeah. You know, but I couldn't explain it to these people. They're, you know, they're New York girls that didn't understand that mindset, you know, to even try to mention OODA loop to them or something like that. You would just see them glaze over like a donut. They wouldn't even be able to begin to comprehend it. And, um, but I held my ground. We argued quite a bit and finally they gave up and, um, and we moved on, but, but yeah, they're always in there and, and, and it's not negative input. They give a lot of really good input, you know, about expand on this or, you know, I don't understand this little tangent you're going off on here. Get rid of that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and they trim it down quite a bit. They get rid of a lot of useless stuff, or they consider useless stuff. But hell, there's characters in my storyline that people have never seen because they just deleted them. Yeah. And uh, so there's it's definitely a give and take. You know the the good thing that a big publisher does is they get you on the bookshelf, in the stores. As a self published guy, that's nearly impossible. Um, you know, a publisher can do that for you. Yeah. But as far as people thinking that you know you get a a publishing deal with a with a big publisher and you're set because they're, they're going to go out and market your book and they're going to do all this stuff. Nah, they don't do none of that. Um, I had a PR person, for lack of a better word, that never did anything. Penguin listed me on their Facebook page one time and never again. Hmm. And didn't even say anything about me. I think they put up a shot of the book cover and didn't even say anything about it. But, you know, if you look at their, go to their Facebook page and look at the kind of books they promote, you'll see why they weren't promoting my book. Even though... I outsold 90% of what they were publishing 10 to 1. When I was with them, I was on the, listed on the USA Today bestsellers list twice and qualified for New York two times, but the New York Times wouldn't list me. So, You would think just from a, a, a purely monetary sense, from them saying, well, we're a publishing company, we want to make money, that, that they would, if they see something is popular or has a market, even if it's a little bit of a niche market, why not exploit that market? Why not go after that and say, okay, well, let's get as much as we can. Let's expose this guy as much as we can and get him out there. So I don't know. Maybe. You would you would think they'd want to, but but they um, it didn't agree with their politics. Yeah, you know, I was the black sheep of of the penguin world. They they didn't want to talk about me. It was kind of like you know their dirty little secret. I mean, and they sold well. I mean, I've sold over a million copies at this point. Yeah, and uh, so it did very very well. But uh, they weren't real happy about it. It's hard to figure that stuff out sometimes. And you know, one thing that's that's uh, you see it you see it a ton on television, but you also see it in books too, is where you have authors that don't really research uh, certain things, especially with guns, um, but also with certain gear and things like that. They just kind of say, "Ah, eh, you know, I this is what I want the story to be." And so, a lot of times in books and, in, and especially on in TV and movies. I'll get sort of taken out of the story a little bit when I see something and I'm like, oh, that's kind of, 
that that wouldn't happen that way, or that person would never do that. So, uh, but again, it goes back probably to they just want to get from plot point A to plot point B. And and uh, although I have seen there are there are definitely things where their politics are shoved in there uh, quite a bit. Um, oh yeah, I mean you know you're gonna do that. I mean it's, you know that's the 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 joy of writing a book is you're a God yeah. you created a world and what you want to happen happens. Um, but to go back, what, one of the things you were mentioning there about people putting stuff in there, not understanding what it's like in, in this genre in particular right now, there's a lot of people writing. I've been in it for, for many years now and everybody and their brothers kind of throw their hat in the ring. And there's people that are writing in the, in the genre that kind of live the prepper lifestyle. And there's people that are writing in the genre cause they want to make a bunch of money. And you can spot the difference in those people. Um, people that don't do this, like you just said, they research things online and look it up, but they've never held it in their hand. They've never yeah. used it. They don't know how it acts, what its little intricacies are, or, or its um, subtleties, you know. And and that comes through, in my opinion. And, you know, whereas I live this. I do this for real. This isn't just a – I don't write these books just to, to write these books about it. You know, I garden, I've got livestock, greenhouses, you know, I store stuff, you know, I mean, um, I train with, with firearms and primitive skills and medical skills and everything else in the world so that should I ever need them, you know, I'll, I'll have those abilities. Um, and that's just one of the things that kind of bugs me is, is folks that are, it seems disingenuous to be writing books about this kind of thing and not have any knowledge, you know foundational knowledge of the topic yeah that's one of the things that irks me personally yeah and i don't claim to be an expert don't get me wrong i'm not the end all be all i've never claimed to be um i've been doing this for over 20 years i'll say that but um and i make mistakes just like everybody else does but uh at least i'm out there trying to do it but yeah yeah i've learned i've uh Luckily, my wife is kind of, well, let's switch over, we'll kind of jump over to the sort of that prepper mindset or prepper mentality a little bit. And luckily, my wife is kind of on board with that stuff. And she she had seen some things a few years ago, and then she was like, oh, you know, I think we need to have probably an escape plan if something went wrong here. I'm, I live down in the Phoenix area, you know, where what, other t- what are some towns that we could go to if we had to? Where are some other places if something went bad here that we could leave? And so we ended up kind of um, having like a little, almost like a little manual of, okay, here's where we could go here, here, or here. Um, here's the stuff we want to take. Here's the things that we want to keep in our cars and things like that. And uh, she's also pretty uh, good with um, the firearms. She was raised, and I've talked about this on the show before, so the listeners will, this will be a little bit of a recap, but she was raised that kind of firearms weren't, the, the biggest evil in the world, but you know, ah, eh, you don't really need one. Um, you, you know, that's what the police and stuff are for and kind of the guns are, are, uh, bad. They're again, they're not the biggest evil in the world, but they're probably, you know, cause some problems. So she's taken some steps and really kind of tried to, uh, open up her own world. And, uh, she's gotten some training and done some women's only classes, which she likes. Um, so I'm lucky in that at least I don't have her kind of fighting me or saying like, why do you do this? Or why do you want that? So she sees sort of the logic and the reason behind it. And, uh, even if we don't ever use it, the stuff that we have, we try and do the, the philosophy of sort of rotating things through. So all our food and everything, we 
we try and keep up and try and keep rotating through. Um, but do you, what kind of got you started in the prepping thing? Was that something that you got from your parents or was it something you sort of came to on your own? Well, it was basically necessity. I live in Florida. Hmm. <laughs> so, you know, you living down here, you, you know that at some point there's going to be a major hurricane. It may not be this year. It may not be next year. I mean, we've gone like 10 years before and not had a major storm. Yeah. But at some point, one's going to come through. And, and it, it used to amaze me to watch people, the way they would panic running out, trying to buy generators and stuff. And then, you know, oh, the storm passes and then, you know, they're returning them back to the stores where they bought them or they're, you know, selling them on Craigslist or whatever. And I just never understood that mentality or logic. And so I just, you know, as I started to get older and could afford to do more, I just started increasing my level of preparedness so that when Irma came through last time, you know, um, after the storm passed in 15 minutes, I had the power back onto my house. Everything was functioning as normal. And, and I, I went and took a nap. Yeah. You know, I'm asleep. Everything's good here. Um, generator the my entire house i keep fuels my property in, in quantity um you know i've got equipment tractors and you know side by sides and stuff like that so i can haul things move things fix things i've got food stored for uh, shoot probably i could probably do nine months right now easily i could probably do four months out of my freezers alone yeah and I have gen generator backup power. I have solar backup power, um, depending on what the situation is, you know. Because um, and that was just it, you know. Living in Florida and, and hurricanes coming around. When my kids were little, they looked forward to a hurricane because they got to use all this cool stuff that they yeah. play with every day, you know. Flashlights and lanterns and things are done a little different around the house, and to them it was always fun. Um, my oldest daughter still cracks me up every time a hurricane's coming. She calls me all excited. Can I come out to the house? I'm like, yeah, come on, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> come, come bunker down with us. We're gonna be here, you know. So, um, and if the alternative is that level of assurance, you know, mental assurance that yeah, yeah we're gonna be fine, you know, short of my house and everything I own being completely blown away, which I live in the center of the state and that's fairly unlikely. Yeah, I'm gonna be okay, you know. Versus I'm like everybody else running around last minute trying to get stuff, you know. I mean, for Irma, we didn't go to the store and buy anything. I mean, not we didn't make a special trip to the store to pick up a single thing, nothing. We had anything we needed here. There's, there was no sense in going out and getting in the, the madhouses or the fights in the stores because it happens down here. People will get in fist fights over fuel, over things in the grocery store, bottled water, all that stuff, um, which – Again, something like bottled water, it just always amazed me. I don't store bottled water. Well, my wife, she gets Fiji water. That's her thing. But yeah, I store water in 55-gallon drums. I have food-grade barrels. When a storm's come, I break out the six drums. I fill them up with fresh water and leave them sitting. And after storm season passes, if nothing's happened, I drain them, air dry the drums, and wait till next year. Yeah. So, you know, it's just a – I guess it's a different mentality, you know, a little preparedness goes a long way, and a lot of it has to do with being willing, ready, and able to take responsibility for yourself and your family. And that's what it really comes down to me. I don't want to be a burden if there's somebody else out there that really needs help. I don't want my 
uncomfortable condition to get in the way of somebody who really needs help being helped. And if everybody thought that way, um, we wouldn't have nearly as much trouble when these little disasters happen, snowstorms or, or what have you, you know. Well, you know, I've, that's that's a good point, and I'd often I've often thought, and that's one of the things that my wife and t- and I have talked about on on several occasions is that if everybody had even just one month worth of food, of canned goods, of of stuff that they kind of rotate through that they know that they've got, just thirty days, that if a disaster happened in, uh, let's say Florida, or there's something that goes wrong in, uh, let's say down in my neck of the woods, that it, it goes down. In Tucson, something really bad happens for whatever reason down there. That if people, even if they could take, well, I've got, you know, five or six cans of chili, I've got this or that, and I could put those in a thing and send it down or put it on a truck and send it down there that the whole country could just, I know it's hard to mobilize and stuff like that, but if that was sort of the mindset, you could have tons and tons of food and supplies go to whatever region of the country needed it almost instantly. And it, and it wouldn't totally drain what you had. But if everybody could kind of chip in and, and give just a little bit, uh, you know, you would have more stuff than you would know what to do with. Uh, but I've, I've seen a few years ago, there was out here a, I think everybody was panicking over, I don't know, like swine flu or bird flu or Ebola or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember going into, it was either Sam's Club or Costco, and all of the uh, hand sanitizer, all that stuff was gone. Uh, most of the water yeah. was gone. Uh, and I remember thinking, oh, well, luckily we've got some of that stuff, and I was able to get what we wanted and, and go ahead and head on out. But it was interesting to sort of see the panic. And out here... Where I live, you know, the weather is pretty, pretty much pretty decent the whole year round. Yeah, the summer it gets real hot, but um, and that would be the, one of the major things that you would probably have to try and prep for is if the power goes out and it's it's uh, July or August and it's 125 degrees outside, you're going to oh, be yeah. pretty uncomfortable. Um, oh, yeah. And in fact, you would probably have, in some cases, you might have to to leave. Because uh, even at night, it is still, oh, when it's 120 uh, at night, it'll still be 95, 98 degrees sometimes. Uh, it is just so. It's, well, and, you know, and when, when, you, when you look at things like that, you have to, can, you go back to basics. And when basics, I mean very basics. We talk about carrying capacity of, of an environment um, or, or of an um, area. And the carrying capacity for like Phoenix is not the population of Phoenix. Oh no! You know, if even the metro, because there's so many man-made things that are allowing people to live in those areas where the, ordinarily that many people, millions of people would not be able to live. So if you suddenly flip the switch and all those systems shut down, power, water sanitation, all that stuff, um, you would find out real quick just how inhospitable an environment you live in really is. And not saying you can live there if you want to, but you need to think of that and plan accordingly. Because like you just said, when it's 125 degrees outside, what are you going to do? Modern construction isn't designed to function without climate control. 
Yeah, oh, absolutely. You know, there is no such thing as cross cross ventilation no more. You know, old houses used to have cross ventilation, the vents above the doors and the and the, the windows would be open to allow air to flow through the buildings. You take a modern house, shut off the central air. Even if you open up all the doors and windows, you're still in it with mold in the house because they're not designed for airflow. Well, um, yeah, yeah, and out here, like here in Florida, you know. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say out here with the airflow, a lot of times it's just there's no breeze. It's just stagnant, and especially in the summer. It's you know you go outside, and and most people they go from an air conditioned house, get into their air conditioned car go to the air-conditioned grocery store or to work, and then they get back in their car, and then they, you know, come back into the air-conditioned home. And, and then they have sort of a uh, a false sense that they're acclimated to that type of heat because they can go out and be in it for 10, 15 minutes at a time. Uh, and most people aren't even out in it that long. But I did, uh, a couple years ago, I did an experiment when I went out into the desert went out there about four in the morning in the summer and it got up to about oh 115 and it was brutal and this was by 10 o'clock and uh and then i sort of walked back to the truck and said okay i'm kind of done but uh yeah i don't know It, it the thought of the power going out especially being out here is a terrifying thought for me um because every if if it goes out and it stays out and depending on what time of year it is if it's in the summer there's going to, you're going to have a lot of die-offs and you're going to have a mass exodus. And I don't know where people are going to go. Um, the, oh, they're going to, they're going to walk until they die. That's yeah. Happened. I mean, if you look at any serious, um, survival education, be it military, serious schools, any sort of thing like that, um, deserts and oceans, which are the same thing. The oceans are just as much a desert as the desert is. Yeah. Um, are the two most inhospitable environments for humans to live in. In a desert environment, like where you're talking 115, 120 degrees, you're going to need to be able to drink gallons of water a day. Oh yeah, yeah. If you're doing anything, if you're doing anything at all, you will literally need gallons of water. And and all the the, the school of thought in the desert environment is, you do things first thing in the morning. And last thing in the evening, and you spend the rest of the day laid up in the shade, moving as little as possible, controlling your breathing because you're losing hydration through aspiration. Um, it's just, it's you know, it's not a place where people were meant to live long term. Unless you have some little natural spring right there in your backyard where you can have a never-ending supply of water, um, you're not able to pull it off. But if you have a feature like that in that environment where millions of other people are looking for the same thing, you're going to spend all your time trying to keep it. Yeah. Um, it'll be just, it'll be more valuable than any other commodity in the world. So it's, you know, for you, light and water is the number one thing. You know, for us here, the summers get hot, they're humid, they're miserable, but there's water everywhere. Yeah. I mean, you know, you can't go five miles in any one direction and not hit water in the state of Florida. So, I mean, within side of my house there's six substantial bodies of water that i can think of almost within sight so it's a different you know in each environment's different but we all have our our um, unique issues to deal with and just like you said heat here summertime miserable miserable that's why i have a 15w generator that'll run my entire house so my central area will function you know but that's only as good for however much fuel I have stored. Yeah. 
you have to weigh these things out, you know, so. So I've always kind of thought, like, one of the things that sort of people don't think about when they when they think about prepping is they think about, oh, they'll, they'll say, you know, I'll have guns and ammo to defend the stuff that I have. I'll have food and maybe some water set aside, and that'll kind of help me. But a lot of times, especially out here, or places like Texas, New Mexico, even parts of California, the sun shines almost 365. You know, there's there's very few days where it's super overcast out of the year. So how what would be some advice that you would give somebody, like how could they prep for electric or maybe how probably a better way to say how could they prep for generating electricity what would be some good ideas for them so uh either wind or solar or is is uh, a generator with fuel going to be the best way or is or is it kind of a combination of all those things well i am a firm believer in, in redundancy you know i look at everything as as layers you know um so for me personally the easiest thing for anybody to do is a generator um, but now you're looking at you got to store fuel, but but not just fuel. You also need motor oil. Um, yeah. I would recommend getting a generator with a detachable fuel filter, um, like Generax. They all have a spin-off fuel filter and have fuel filters on hand. You know the, the oil in those motors should be changed every 50 hours. So if you consider that you're running like after Irma came through, I ran my generator 24/7. Mm. And to give some perspective on that, that 15 kW generator burned 37 gallons of fuel a day. Wow, not like that. So there's a there's a logistical issue of storing enough gas. Then there's the cost associated with storing enough gas. Then there's the motor oil, the fuel filters. You know, because now the oil needs changed every other day um, to be able to to run like that. So I keep a dozen fuel filters for my generator on hand. You know, I keep about 500 gallons of gasoline on hand at my house. Um, I have above ground storage tanks. I keep diesel fuel because two diesel trucks, tractor, and I keep gas tank out there as well. Um, all full, ready to go, you know, when I need it. Um, and then I also have a solar backup system as well. Um, the solar system that I put in holds eight kilowatt power. It runs off of 3,500 watts worth of solar panels. And so I use it to power my shop for now, but I built the system inside of an enclosed trailer so that in the event of a long-term, I can disconnect the panels, load them into the trailer, back it up beside my house, plug it into a 50-amp receptacle, and backfeed the house, set the panels back up and backfeed my house. So that in a, in a long-term situation, that is the primary power supply for the for the house and need it i will intermittently run a generator to supplement the power from the solar system that gives me a long-term solution but you know solar is a big investment you know it's a lot of upfront money but you know especially like out where you live i mean solar would be the absolute way to go because you've got wide open skies very little obstructions in most cases and plenty of sunshine. Yeah. But again, it's for some folks it's cost prohibitive. But you could do it creatively too. You know, you don't have to, you know, lay out the third day to have somebody come out and put this in your house. You can you can do it yourself. It's not that hard. Spend a little time doing some research. Look around. You can catch deals on solar panels. Like I bought six thousand watts worth of panels, a whole pallet of them. They were in New Jersey at the time. 
And uh, they're like, you know, four grand, you have the whole pallet. And I'm like, I'll take it. Yeah. I'll truck and send it. You know, cost me 300 bucks to have them shipped to my house. Yeah. But that's less than, that's like 70 cents a watt, you know. It was pretty cheap, you know, especially at the time I did it. So, but yeah, I would, I would look at things and, you know, a combination of things. And I have small generators too. I have like little Honda EU 2000s that are extremely efficient and keep a refrigerator going for a long time on very, very little fuel. Um, you know, try to build some redundancy into that plan. But first thing, easy thing, get a generator and it's good for short-term outages. Um, in 2014, we lost power for two weeks and I, I used three around five kW portable generators to power my house. And you'll be surprised at what a five kW generator will do. It ran everything in my home except my hot water heater and my central air. But it ran multiple refrigerators, freezers, microwave ovens, you know, electric cooktop, everything. It ran it all. Well pump, sump pump, it ran everything. And I would run one of those five kW generators for eight hours. I would shut it down, pull it out, pull another one up, start it up, and bring the house back online. And then I would change the oil in that generator and refuel it and put it to the back of the line. And so... Once every 24-hour period, that generator ran for 24 hours or ran for eight hours, and that was how I kept my house going for two weeks. Yeah, yeah. And we had a and we had a window shaker AC in my master bedroom because my wife came home from the hospital with our youngest daughter the day before the hurricane, mm. so <laughs> I had to keep them too comfortable. Yeah. Now, have you in in setting up the the house or have did you experience or have you heard of anybody experiencing any, uh, we'll say, governmental interference as far as, oh, the city code says you can do this or you can't do that? Or is most of that stuff, has, has somebody else sort of already laid the groundwork so they you kind of know what hoops you're going to have to jump through? Well, there's always those issues. My, my number one recommendation, I know it's not practical for a lot of people in the United States, is don't live inside the city limits of anything anywhere ever. Um, yeah. That's my personal view. I will not live inside the city limits of anything. Um, but like here in Florida, it is illegal to have a solar system and it not be grid tied. That's a state law. Now they say that it's for safety of utility workers so that in a grid tied system, so folks understand it is a lot of these solar systems you see that people are saying, Hey, we'll come out, no money down subsidies, all this, we'll install the system. And you know, it's going to be great. It'll, it'll help take care of your electric bill, blah, blah, blah. What they're not telling you is that if the grid power goes out, even though you have, let's say, you know, 6,000 watts worth of solar on the roof of your house, you're not going to have power either. Yeah. Because when the grid power goes down, it disconnects the power to your house. Now, the power companies say that's so that nothing is backfeeding into their system and endangering their workers. And I used to be a lineman. I get that. I understand the dangers of that. But if my house isn't even tied to the grid, what does it matter what kind of power system I put on my house? But you cannot legally, almost anywhere in this country, have an off-grid home. Most municipalities will fight it tooth and nail. In Florida, they, if you try that, they will come out and um, code enforcement will slap a, a warning on your house saying that it's not fit for occupancy and no one can enter it. No. They do it regularly here, you know, which is mind-boggling and stupid beyond words, but that's because power regulators get to write legislation, just like every other corporation in the country gets to write their own legislation. 
Um, and so you have to be grid tied. So that's why my system is built into a trailer because it's not tied to my house. It's a portable solar system that I use for portable power. Mm. Um, but I can connect it to my house if I need to, just like I can connect a generator to my house. It's, it's kind of odd that it's not illegal to have a backup generator on your house, but it is illegal to have a backup solar system on your house. Yeah, we had some friends that had a bunch of solar panels installed, and they did the same thing. They had to, they were required to be tied to the grid, and then they had a uh, an electrician friend of theirs came out, and they rigged up a a system to where if the power did go down, they could switch it off, and it would go over. It, it would allow them to have power yeah, at the it's, house. It's, it's super simple. They make a device just for that to protect electrical. Uh, sources and it's called a um, transfer switch um, it's a standard product that's been in use for you know many 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 years uh, I'm an industrial electrician by trade and I've installed hundreds of them so that when the power went out if you had a, say you had a solar backup system on your house when the power dropped this switch would make a physical disconnect from the grid to your solar system repower your house but there's actual physical separation so nothing can go back into the grid yeah. Super simple to do. And you and they have manual versions too. Um, but, you know, a, an easy out for the, for the state would have been to say, all right, if you want to have a solar system uh, for emergency power, then you must install a automatic transfer switch. That'd be easy. You know, yeah, it's going to add a thousand bucks to somebody's installation, but now you actually have the freedom and the power to do that for yourself. You're not beholden now to the electric companies. Yeah, and uh, you know, I'm I'm sure it was they did it that way because the uh, local utilities didn't want the competition. Um, That's exactly what it is. You're cutting into their bottom line. That's yeah. all it's about. So, because if you think about it out here, if if you and I, I I am not in favor of you know the government requiring you to do anything, but let's say if they said all new home builds have to have you know five or six solar panels on there that are tied into the grid that feed back in that give you extra. I mean. When you when you think of the sheer square miles of, of if, when you when you look at Phoenix, you've got Phoenix and Tempe where ASU is, and you've got Gilbert and Chandler and and those East Valley cities, and then you've got all the stuff on the west side. You've got Peoria and and then you know tons of other uh, towns over there. So there's, I mean, I don't know how many millions of square feet of roof stuff where you could have power that would be generated. You know, they talk about that. If you had uh, 10 square miles of solar power, you know, that was dumped out in the desert somewhere, and then you could, of course, you'd have the problem of getting it to where it needs to go. But, you know, you could power most of the country uh, for during the day, I guess, you know, when the power was out and running. But, you know, I've right, often... well, and that's when peak, that's when peak consumption is too. Yeah. And, and there, you're, you're spot on in that the Department of Defense is installing what they call microgrids at all their military bases, huge solar farms, so that they are not dependent on grid power. So if the grid power was to go out, they have their own solar farms that they can rely on to power the bases. Yeah. If if it's good for them, it would be good for us. Because, yeah, it would be awesome if utility companies factored that kind of uh, construction cost into their bottom lines to say, yeah, all right, we will give the homeowner 6,000 watts worth of solar, but yeah, this is going to be great tide. We're going to use the generation to help provide power to everybody, but it's not going to cost you anything. Just like 
you know, you're going to have your utility bill, of course. You'll still pay for what you consume. Yeah. But just like, you know, when they put up poles and stuff, we don't directly pay out of our pocket for that. I mean, we do, but we don't have to stroke a check for the two power poles that the hurricane knocked over in front of my house. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, although after the storms, they always do go to the Public Service Commission of Florida and ask for a, a special fee to be able to whack everybody, you know, a couple hundred bucks to, to help pay for the restoration. But then you can go look at their corporate filings and see how much they profited for the year, and they won't dare dip into that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I've often thought, too, out here that the majority of us should – most. you would think a lot of places out here would have basements because the, the ground is going to insulate you, and, and that basement is going to keep you relatively cool. Um, but most houses out here don't have them. And I often thought, oh, you know, the majority of our house should be underground and have a very small footprint that's above ground. Um, my sister lives out here and she has a basement home and that, then the basement's always, you know, it's always a little bit cooler and, uh, during the summer months and everything. But, uh, it's funny how it, everybody sort of, it's sort of just like one size fits all for everything. Uh, this is the way it's done. Well, it, it, if you look at the indigenous people that that are from that area, that's how they lived. Yeah. Um, they, they, they didn't, they didn't live in, in above ground dwellings, um, in direct sunlight. They lived in, in caves or cliffside dwellings, um, somewhere where there was a microclimate that provided shade throughout part of the day. You know, if, if you go back to the, how those people that first settled that area lived, you get an idea of the disparity between how they did things and how we did things. You know, they lived in harmony with the environment, whereas we come in today and we're just going to hammer the environment into the into what we want it to be. And uh, that works great up until our systems fail and then, you know, people die. Yeah, and they uh, there's some ruins out uh, south of us, and it shows how, and I forget the name of the tribe, but how they lived. And what they did was they... Um, they diverted some of the river to come over to where they were going to be. And of course, at the time when they were there, the river was flowing and it pretty much flowed year round. Um, but they diverted water there so that they could irrigate. And then they made these, um, they did have a above ground stuff, but they were these huge, thick, like probably a good two foot thick um, walls that they would just make out of the soil and water that they would have. And, and a little bit of sometimes so they would use a little bit of the indigenous like weeds and stuff to, to almost make like a, oh, what do they call it? Like a, Adobe. Like an like adobe, adobe type thing, yeah. Yep. And you and then they, they, of course, they had to maintain them. They kept them up. But you go in those, we you can go in there in the summer and you can go into some of those ruins and it's quite a bit cooler just because it takes it so long for that to heat up. And of course, now there's no water there now, but back then there would have been. Um, but again, it's sort of that thing of, Right, and there's and there's there's no water there now because we come in and diverted all the natural water sources, oh, yeah. Yeah. waterways, to fit again that our view or our vision of what it should be. You know, um, that's that you know living with or against nature sort of thing. And don't get me wrong, I'm no tree hugging kind of hippie dude, but um, I also understand that you know us meddling too much with that sort of thing generally just causes more problems than it does. Um, solutions well you need to have sort of respect for the resource Absolutely. you know it's like it's like with hunting and conservation you know i uh 
when I was a kid who grew up hunting and fishing and all that stuff, and we belonged to Ducks Unlimited and, you know, the local hunting clubs and things like that. And what a lot of people don't realize, and a lot of the, the oh, like the animal rights activists and everything, they don't realize how much money hunting and how much money goes into conservation. And if the hunters weren't there, that money's not going to be there. Plus, they don't realize... I saw a thing the other day where they uh, these guys were, I think they were maybe up in Wyoming or something like that, and they were going to go do a buffalo hunt. And then they had like these two or three people that were out there trying to protest them. And I remember thinking, well, <laughs> and and uh, they, they would go out there and they would just stand by them as they were hunting type thing. It was a really kind of passive aggressive, really kind of weird thing. But I remember thinking... And I was talking. This was uh, I was talking to my mother and father-in-law about it. We were watching this program, and I'm like, "Well, th- these people aren't doing anything because that herd is going to be culled anyway. It's either you're going to somebody is the 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 state is going to get paid by somebody to come in and, and like you know hunter A is going to come in and, and give money to the state and give money to that area and give money for the to the help the conservation of that herd or the state will pay a guy to just go out and shoot him anyway. So there's not, there's no, you know, again, the, the uh, short-sightedness and the unwillingness of people to sort of see the reality of stuff never ceases to amaze me uh, that, that people. Yeah. Are... It's just like the, the people that, that go bananas when um, somebody goes to Africa and shoots something like an elephant, let's say, yeah, or an, or a lion even. And people want to lose their minds. People here want to lose their minds. If you went to the village where these hunts were taking place, they're all for it. Because a lot of times the elephant that's being shot is a nuisance animal that's destroying people's livelihoods by trampling farms or invading villages. Um, Or it's an older animal that's part of a herd that's close to the end of its life and if someone's willing to come in and spend, pay them tens of thousands of dollars to shoot that animal, as opposed to letting it just die on the prairie there or the savanna, you know, and, and rot away and there'd be no benefit to the village, you know, we shouldn't stay out of people's business. You know what I mean? Um, cause when a hunt like that takes place, if it's a, if it's an elephant or something like that, the village gets the meat. Yeah. They get all the and, meat. They get all the meat, and even even the buffalo hunts. You know, a friend of mine arranged a buffalo hunt on um, some tribe land up in, I think, North Dakota, for some guys for a uh, veterans charity. And part of the deal was that they had to pay f- to hunt the buffalo. They had to use the native guides, and the tribe got part of the meat from that animal. That would go to the needy in their. In their community, uh, yeah. In their community. So they got paid to do it. They got the benefit of some of the meat from it. You know, it's a benefit all the way around. You know, this this thought of it's a wild animal and you should leave it alone, you know, let it live its life. Um, everything in this nation from coast to coast, border to border, is managed resource in one fashion or another. Um, there's nothing out there that's not managed. There's people that keep an eye on animal stocks, animal levels, animals' health. You know, if you let their herds get too big, there's not enough forage for them because we've destroyed so much habitat. So they have to be managed. You can either let them suffer and die naturally or cull them periodically in a, you know, a humane way um, and generate revenue to 
keep protecting the resource. Yeah. It's just, I'm a, I'm a hunter and fisherman too, and I'm all about conservation and all hunters and fishermen are, you know, unless you're just some outlaw poacher and you don't care. Um, we respect the resource more than anybody else does because we're the ones that are actively going out and engaging with the resource. We don't just look at it on a meme on Facebook. You know, we get out there and look at eye to eye. So we really understand the value of the resource. Yeah. So, and, uh, it, and, and the, and the bottom line is again, like we've said, those animals are going to be killed anyway because they're managed. They're a managed yeah. resource. So uh, you're not you're not saving anything. Plus, if you look at it from if it's a clean kill, that animal is out there one day, out in the sunshine, having a good time, and then in, a, in an instant, it's dead. It didn't suffer, um, and it, it's better than that animal, you know, getting crippled or getting you know starving to death, or getting ripped apart by coyotes or wolves. Uh, you know, it's a quicker, cleaner death. Uh, and it doesn't mean that you can't respect the animal, respect the environment and all that stuff. And that's what some of that, those people, they just don't, they just don't get it. They don't understand. So, um, but anyway, as far as, as long as you've been doing this, what's some of the, the, not failures, but maybe the, what's some of the biggest mistakes that maybe somebody makes when they're first starting out? Um, do they, do they just kind of get overwhelmed and then say, eh, I'm going to, I'll, I'll bail or. What, what's something yeah, that you've a seen? A lot of people, a lot of people do, and, and your audience will will probably get a miffed at me for saying this. The number one thing people start with when they start thinking of prepping or that they need to start prepping is guns and ammo. Yeah. Now, I know you're a gun guy. I'm a gun guy. I, I got a safe full of them. And um, when somebody asks me how many guns I need, my standard reply is just one more. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but. Um, People focus too much on it, mainly because it's cool, it's fun, we like to do it, and it's easy to do. Um, but if you have, you know, 17 rifles, you know, 15 handguns, 10,000 rounds of ammo, but you don't have two weeks worth of food, your priorities are messed up. Yeah. You, you know, you, it, it takes a balanced approach, and it takes time, too, because nobody can afford to run out and buy their preparedness solution. You've got to develop it over time. And, and so I work with a website called Survival Dispatch. And at Survival Dispatch, we have kind of like a ch checklist that you can use to evaluate your storage um, items. And it covers everything from firearms and ammo to food to clothing to medical supplies to fuel, energy. I mean, you name it. Everything is in there. And when you're done, it'll give you a representation of where you stand on all these categories. So if you're green in guns and ammo, but you're black on hygiene supplies, you know, you need to start focusing some of your resources into building up your hygiene supplies or your food supply or your water storage or whatever the case may be, you know, and, and just try to approach a balance. You know, there's a, there's a system we call copy canning, which when you go to the grocery store, if your family, just as an example, lights, likes Campbell's tomato soup and, and you eat two or three cans of that a week instead of buying the two or three cans you're going to eat that week you buy six cans yeah you put three away you eat the three this week well next week you go back you buy six more cans you take the three you bought last week you use those you put the six cans away well now you're starting a food rotation thing as well and and it, it goes with everything you know it's simple stuff things that are shelf stable easy to store pasta rice um dried products dried beans that kind of thing 
um, and you can start building up a an inventory that way. Um, some things take a little bit of initiative to store right. Like you can't just go buy a bag of flour and throw it in your pantry and think that in a year it's still going to be good. You know, you're, you're going to have some issues with it. Um, so you you know you're going to want to stick that in the freezer, freeze it, and then maybe dump it in a mylar bag and then seal that bag properly with a you know a desiccant package or something to prevent um weevils or anything like that get into it yeah but by slowly doing this you can you can start building up a food storage system and the same with gasoline you know you know you go buy three or four or five gallon jugs fill them get you some stable treat them put them away in the garage you know every six months when your car is empty you dump those into the tank you take cans up to the gas station you fill them up and then you buy three more cans and you do the same thing um i like taking a little paper tag with a loop on it and putting it around the neck of the jug with the date of when it was filled so that you can keep track of your rotation on um i use like i said big storage tanks now and we don't go to the gas station all our fueling is done right here at my house so when we need anybody needs fuel in their vehicle they pull up the tanks they fill up their car and I watch the fuel levels, and when I get to about half a tank, I call and have fuel delivered and get the tanks refilled. Mm. And if there's any kind of a hurricane or something like that bearing down on us, then I call and get the tanks topped off, and we stop using it, and we will use gas stations and such until the storm hits and the power goes out and whatnot. Um, when all the fuel's gone, then we will use our reserve fuel. So it just takes a little bit of planning, um, you know, and that's part of the thing. Folks want an easy life. You know, when you start looking at these things, you, you'll see how fragile all the systems are and how easily you can be let down. And it's a little unnerving. And a lot of people, I had one lady tell me, I just don't want to think about it. You know, and I was like, well, you know, look at it this way. You can think about it now while you're comfortable and fed and, and happy. Or, or you can think about this when you're uncomfortable, you're hungry, and there is no way to fix the problem. So a little... Prior planning now, you know, it's, it's the whole, uh, you know, uh, a pound of prevention kind of a thing, you know, plan ahead now so you're not suffering later. Yeah. Yeah, I, you were talking about putting the tags on stuff but for the fuel, but I, we do that whenever we buy anything. I, and my wife kind of gets, laughs at me sometimes, but I always write the date on everything with a Sharpie on the back, well, on the package. I yeah. write the date that I buy it. My wife, my wife does that every time she opens a package. So if we have a, something on the shelf, when it gets open, she writes the date. Yeah, we'll do that. So we know how long, you know. A, yeah, we do that too. Chips or what? Yeah, yeah. And, th- and then we'll also, for the for our leftovers in the in the refrigerator, we'll take a little sticky note and we'll, uh, you know, put it on the Tupperware or whatever. This is when we got it. And then by by us doing that, we've ended up, I think, throwing out actually less food because we actually know, oh, okay, sure. this has only been in here a week where if you've put two two things of refried beans in there and they're in the both they're both in the same type of container and then you're like, "Oh, which one did I put in here a week ago and which one did I put in here yesterday?" So yep. even yep. just little so I, little things like that helps. Absolutely. I, I mean, I went and bought a freeze-dry machine, so a lot of our leftovers get freeze-dried mm. and added to our food storage. Um, cuz the you know, sure you can go out and buy Mountain House and all that stuff. Um but it's not going to be the things that you're accustomed to eating. Yeah. By making your own food storage, you're eating the things you're already used to eating. So there's a comfort level built into that, that, you know, it's your own food. You've prepared it. You know what's in it. And we freeze dry it. Um, we 
put stuff in mylar with O2 absorbers, desiccant packages, vacuum it down and seal it. And it goes into my, my storage. Everything's dated and labeled. And uh, I've got mountains of it put away. Yeah. Yeah, we, we're, we're decent on our food storage. Um, but, we, you know, I always feel we can do a little better here and there. But um, one of the things I was able to pick up a, a couple years ago was I got a Vacmaster by Ari. There was a guy who had had a, a beef jerky business, and then he was kind of done with that, so he was selling his stuff. So I got it for about half price. Um, and it's nice. The, it's the uh, little uh, the 215 model, so it's not you know it's not a great big giant one, but everything that we need, I can I can vacuum that stuff in there, and it's a chamber machine. Um, so for for those of you guys maybe that don't know, basically the, the food saver has a specialized bag that sort of sucks out the air. Um, and then what this one, but the, the thing that I have is a chamber machine. And so it pumps out the air in there and then it seals it up. And then when you take it, um, basically the way the work is you, so I'm going to say it right. The pressure inside there is less than the pressure outside. So that when you open up the lid on that thing and the pressure comes back in, it, it sucks, it, it sucks all the the, the outside air pressure pushes down on there and gives you kind of that 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 uh, form fitting of the package around stuff, and yeah. we've we've uh, yeah. vacuum sealed. I've made little packets for the cars for us um, and for our daughter and things where we've I've done stuff where we've put extra clothes in there and made little things of underwear and shirt and some socks and it's actually come in handy. We've used it a couple of times. Um, uh, we've I've also made little things of. Uh, Wet wipes, where you can put those in there, and some uh, little hygiene packages, where you can put a toothbrush and some toothpaste, some deodorant, um, you know. But you can put whatever you want in there and and seal them down. And also, what's nice about that VacMaster is some stuff it'll if you do it too much, it'll kind of crush them and it'll sort of destroy what's in there. But you don't have to. You can let it get to a certain point and then turn it off. And so it, it, it will right. sort of form around it, but it doesn't crush and destroy what, you, what you've got in there. So uh, I w- we were fortunate to be able to get that a few years ago. But um, Yeah, it's, it's nice having something like that because, you know, like first aid kit stuff is one of the things that always cracks me up kind of in a way. People get their first aid stuff and they put it in a canvas or nylon bag and throw it in a backpack and figure they're good to go well, until the first time your bag gets soaking wet. Yeah. Now all that stuff is compromised. Something like that will allow you to extend the life expectancy of that 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 material, you know, by keeping it waterproof, airtight, stored away. That'd be a. I'm looking at it online now. That you mentioned that one because I'd seen it before and hadn't even thought of it in a long time. But now I'm like, ah, I might need to get one of those. Yeah. <laughs> and what you can do too is you can also take um, you you take the little boards out and then. You can't get as much stuff in the mason jars, but you can lay the mason jar sort of on its side, and you can put stuff in there, and then you just loosely put the lid on, and you vacuum seal it, and then, of course, when you do it, it sucks all the air out, and you get the, the pressure differential, and then right. it sucks it right down, and then you put the thing on. And uh, one thing that we've I've gotten away from doing it, but I was doing some canning, um, and which is which was a, a interesting learning experience, and I really enjoyed doing it. But then I also tried some stuff with uh, you were mentioning like the flour, you know, freezing it to kill the stuff. But yeah. um, I tried some dry what do they call it? Dry canning where you'll stick it in the oven, 
you sterilize your yep. you sterilize your jars and everything, and then you put that in there. And uh, we've I've pretty much used up all that stuff. I actually need to kind of do it again, but I couldn't. We rotated it out within a year, and I couldn't tell any difference in the taste. Um, I know sometimes yeah. with flour, it can get a, you can have it'll be a little stale, and so maybe your food won't be as it's edible. But um, if it goes a little too long, you know, you have a, a difference in taste, or sometimes maybe how the flour reacts and how it will rise and all that kind of stuff. So um, one thing that I did, which I thought was very interesting, and I don't think a lot of people do this. There was a, uh, the city put on a thing uh, called CERT, which, and I forget what it's called, but basically it's how they're going to respond in an emergency. Yep. Civilian emergency response team. Yeah. And so they had that and it was, I think it was free. And so I went to that and it was like a, um, a couple of weekends that we did that. And then we ended up doing some scenarios toward the end and it was, it was put on through the city and through the fire department. But I would recommend that people do that just so that you have an awareness of, oh, this is what the city is going to kind of do in an emergency. This is how they're going to react. This is why they do certain things. This is um, how they're, if, 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 if uh, a building has been collapsed or a bomb has gone off, there's been like a localized terrorist event. You learn kind of what they're going to do, what you can expect for them to do. And also more importantly, I thought is you learn the limitations you learn what the limitations are. They've only, there's only so much resources that they have. And in a big event like that, they're going to be overwhelmed almost instantly, um, which was a real eye-opener. Another, another great thing about CERT, um, it's kind of a hidden benefit to CERT, is it gives you a little credibility. Um, having a CERT certification may get you through a roadblock that other people couldn't get through. Yeah. You know, um, it also gives you inside intel to things like you just said, you know, how they're going to respond, um, you know, what the uh, resources are available to the first responders. Um, and it gets you a little bit on the inside track. We don't have a cert team here in my county, but me and another guy are looking at talking with the county to form one um, just for that to to make those connections with first responders, you know, the sheriff's office and fire rescue and the, the hospitals and those kind of things. Um, and to, and like I said, it gives you a bit of a pedigree too. If there is an event, you'll have access to people that others won't have access to. Now that doesn't mean you're gonna get special treatment, but, but it will give you intelligence and intelligence is just as valuable as anything is in, in any sort of emergency. So that's a, that's search a really, really good thing. Good on you for doing that. Yeah, it was it was an interesting experience, um, and kind of going back, you know, kind of ties in a little bit with, you know, we talked about firearms, and it's one of those things where, if when you're starting out prepping, you're like, well, how am I going to defend the stuff? And so I understand why people can do it, but it's also an easy thing to do. It's a very, it's a, it's an easy goal to say, okay, I want a, a shotgun and I want a pistol. Let's say if a guy is, that's what he wants, well, that's an easy thing to go out and get, and it's relatively inexpensive to get something like yeah. that. Um, you know, you're not into it for a ton of money, but then I think what happens is people get a little myopic with that and you start then focusing on, well, let's see, I've got that shotgun. I've got that pistol. Uh, I'm going to need a plate carrier now and I'm going to need this yeah. and I'm going to need that. And, and because some of those things are attainable and relatively affordable, um, again you you kind of get sort of sucked into that world and then you kind of get drawn down into that little niche world 
to where you sort of start to ignore some of the other things. Or you're like, oh, okay, well, I'll get that next time, but I need to get this now. I need to get, uh, yeah. uh, I want to get this. Now I need night vision and yeah. I need a D-ball and I need, yeah. You know, it's when people get stuck in that, that rut, what I like to tell them is, think of it this way. You're going to need to drink water every day. You're going to need to eat food every day. You're going to have to handle waste every day. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to take care of your hygiene every day. You have to do these things every day. Every person in your group is going to have to do these things every day. Because if you're not doing them, you're not going to be living very long. If you have to rely on a weapon every day, if you're using your firearm every day, you're not going to live very long. Yeah, odds are you're going to die. Just, <laughs> it's just luck of the draw. You're going to die. Yeah. You know, in our, in our fantasies, when we're sitting at home and we're reading stuff or we're playing these all this stuff out in our minds, we're always faster than the we shoot straighter than the other guy. Uh, we have more ammo than the other guy. Our skills are better than him. Um, but I have no formal training, and I am under no illusions that I'm better than anybody. Uh, um, I do train, but I have no combat experience, nothing like that. And I'm I'm not delusional to think that um, I'm some Delta Force operator that's going to be kicking doors in. And, taking down bad guys yeah same with me that's the sort of the same philosophy that i have and um clint smith who does thunder ranch you know he had a thing that he said and this when i very first started getting into it i saw a video of him and he was talking about this and he said he goes when i envision these scenarios in my head i do it differently than most people most people again like you're saying sort of see them coming out victorious and he said i always envision okay if i do this and it fails what do i need to do next and uh, that kind of yeah, stuck with me about, oh, okay, well, maybe it's not going to go the way that you think it's going to go. Uh, so what are you going to do? What's plan B? What's plan C? Uh, what's kind of the next step in my in my ladder of failure that's happening to me all around? So, Right. And, and you can I, – I've for, for those that need the harsh light of reality sometimes to get them around to thinking – too, you know, you've got your plate carrier and your AR, you know, your $3,000 AR and you got your pistol and all your, your cool stuff on and you got a blowout kit with a turning kit and chest seals and all this stuff and you're good to go, you know. Um, well, what happens if things don't go the way that you dreamed them happening and you have to use your tourniquet, okay? You know how to put it on, all right? You, you put your tourniquet on and you've stopped the bleeding, but now what are you going to do? You can't take it off until yeah. you have a higher level of care. Yeah, I have a, um, I, I had a buddy of mine who was a medic. I uh, was a combat medic over in Afghanistan, and he was out visiting one time, and he, he was kind of doing a running some uh, medical stuff on me. And then he was he was showing, okay, this is how you you know would would pack the wound and how you do that. And even him just doing that, and he you know he of course he knows where the arteries are and all that other stuff, but even him just doing that and pushing it, it hurt. And you you kind of like sit up a little bit on that leg thing, and he's like, yeah, and you got to really cr- you got to crank it down way more, and that's why getting some medical training, getting some uh, uh, stuff where you actually kind of do scenarios. Years and years ago, and I, I need to do a refresher on it, but I took an EMT course just because I wanted to know, um, and I actually was uh, certified, I got the certification and everything on that. But um, that medical training is just invaluable. Absolutely, but you, you've got to understand that it's all designed around higher level of care. Oh, yeah, yeah. Patients. Yeah. So Every- me, and, me and some of the guys that, that I train with, we're, you know, 
we're of the understanding that if someone catches a, a round in their ch chest, you know, if it's a straight through and through, maybe just a chest seal can handle it and you might be able to bring them back around. Um, that's one thing. But some of my buddies are like, you know, if that happens to me, you know, leave my pistol and go. Because yeah. there is no there there may not be a higher level of care, and we're talking worst case scenarios here, not you know a hurricane or something. But people have to understand that all this trauma related stuff is dependent on that golden hour. This trying to save guys' lives, get them on a helicopter, to get them to a higher echelon of care, where surgeons are standing and waiting. Yeah. So you know what are you going to do when you do not have it? That does not exist in your world now. What are you going to do? And it really changes the the way you'll think about getting into a gunfight. Um, last thing in the world I want to do is get in a gunfight with anybody um, because a high-velocity bullet hitting you anywhere is going to be a bad, bad day in a in a world where there is no higher echelon of care, there are no first responders, and you're doing ditch medicine for everything. So Yeah, it, and, and even if you got, let's say if it, it, it you got shot and it was a, a grazing wound through the leg, in that situation... If you don't have antibiotics, if you can't get that wound cleaned out, you know you you may die of infection two weeks later. Um, yeah, yeah, gangrene will take you. You know, I mean, yeah. People people need to learn um, a, a term that, that that I put a lot into is delayed primary closure. So, folks, look that up, learn how to do that wound treatment, and that'll probably save some lives. Um, but thinking, you know, I've got a suture kit and I'm going to sew somebody up. Um, yeah, I, I wouldn't recommend it. You know, leave it open, let it drain, keep it clean, let it heal from the inside out. It's the best thing you can do. So <laughs> I, I look at things and I always, what's the worst case and what's the solution for the worst case? Or, or what's the best, worst solution for worst case? Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. That's where I'm always looking. Anything, once I know how what the worst possible scenario is, then I can plan for the ones that are easier to deal with. Um but, you know, you think about somebody, like you just said, you take a, say, a, a five, five, six round through your leg, it's going to rip a huge hole in it. Um, and people are like, oh, well, pack it, you know, and, and uh, stop the bleeding. All right, you've packed it, the bleeding stop. You got to take that stuff out now. Yeah. What, what are you going to do with them? You got to have a plan. You can't leave that in there. You know, it's got to come out. And what's your plan to deal with the wound at this point? So there's a, like I said, it can, it can get a little overwhelming for some folks, but, you know, you just, you got to start at the top and, you know, work your way down. They'll say, and you eat an elephant one bite at a time. You yeah. Know? And it's like, you know, too, kind of with, uh, with the prepping, we'll kind of maybe close out here a little bit, but you know, I, one of the things that I kind of think is, is a big concern of both, uh, of myself and my wife is more of what happens if you, if it's a deal where things are kind of in place, but you sort of need to just stay in your house for about a week. You know, you kind of need to, because there's a, you know, a, a bad, not necessarily a pandemic, but there's, you know, there's some bad germs out there that you don't want to get sick. You don't want to uh, do that. And we've seen, you know, we've seen little mini things of that and kind of what happened. So, uh, you know, it may not be that, oh, it's, it's the end of the world, but it may be a thing of where, you know, if, if you could just lay low for two or three days or a week and not really have a whole lot of interaction with the public, maybe this thing that's kind of laying everybody to waste here a little bit, maybe that'll pass you by. Uh, so absolutely, you know, and, and do you have the ability to not go to the grocery store for a week or to the gas station or to anywhere else? Like you said, you, 
you may just want to hole up at home and avoid contact with anybody else, but you've got to have the stuff. Yeah, and that's that. and that's three and that meals. Does take a lot, really. Yeah, but it's still but it's still three meals a day. Yep. Uh, Free if you want to do it comfortably, three meals a day for each person in your family. Um, hopefully, the the water hasn't been compromised because we'll okay every once in a while, and you 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 still see it even uh, today where they'll say, oh, you know what? There's some there's been an outbreak or something, or there's something went wrong at the treatment plant. So, you know, try to avoid drink bottled water or. Uh, you know, boil yep. your water, this, that, still if happens. you're, yeah, it still happens today with all the stuff that we have in place. So, well, Hey man, thanks for, uh, coming on the show. I appreciate it. It was nice to get to sort of know you virtually a little bit. And, uh, I'd Absolutely. love to, love to have you back one of these days. Anytime, anytime. I enjoyed the conversation and uh, had a good time. And anytime you want to do it again, just let me know. I'll be happy to come back. Oh, sure. Uh, one last thing. Do you have anything you want to plug? Any websites uh, where people could go to uh, pick, like I said, pick up the books? Do you do any classes or have any training centers or anything like that that you do or, or want to mention? Well, we're working on developing some classes now. I'm getting ready to host one in April 6th and 8th down in Bradford, Florida. But, um, if folks are wanting more information on, on like where to begin prepping that kind of thing, check out survivaldispatch.com. Okay. Um, I write for that. I write for that website, and I also shoot video. And it's for everybody who's wanting to start preparing, all the way up to the people who are uber prepared and looking to refine their their methods and um, practices. So definitely check those out. And the books, of course, you know they're available. Amazon, Barnes and Noble, the two easiest places in the world to get things. Um, you can find some of them in the bookstore still. So, but yeah, they're out there and it's uh, the best way to get them. I do sign copies, of course. People reach out to me directly, hit me up on Facebook if they want signed copies. I do those. Okay. But uh, otherwise, just let the big retailers do it because they're way better at it than I am. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, Chris. Well, hey, thanks again and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Awesome. Thank you, brother. All right. Bye. Bye. Okay, guys, I hope you enjoyed the conversation that Chris and I had and hope you got something out of it. Again, be sure to check out his stuff on Amazon if you want to check out some of his books. Uh, Also, go over to survivaldispatch.com. And like I said, I will put a link uh, in that on the the show notes over on the uh, website at firearmscafe.com. So anyway, it's an interesting uh, website, and so go ahead and check that out. All right, guys, I will talk to you next time.